0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Hello, I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, The Economist science and technology podcast. On today's program, we hear how
2: a second quantum revolution is getting underway. Certainly the autonomous car industry is already very interested in this because their, their sort of safety and reliability is going to be very dependent on them being able to sense their environment.
1: Discover how unmanned underwater vehicles, used for everything from prospecting for oil and gas to naval warfare, are being given an extra range
3: by a new type of battery based on aluminum. You want it to be made of the most energetic stuff possible, crammed into the smallest space possible. And aluminium is this. It's pretty much as good as you can get.
1: And why a new study says yellow taxis are much less likely to get into accidents than taxis
4: of other colors. This isn't trivial. You're talking about a difference of 70-odd accidents a month over the course of a year. That adds up to two, two and a half million Singaporean dollars. Quantum mechanics stand as perhaps the greatest scientific
1: triumph of the 20th century. The first quantum revolution helped to explain everything from the layout of the periodic table to guiding the development of everyday technologies, from lasers to MRI machines. Now a second quantum revolution is afoot, with perhaps the most lauded application being the quantum computer. Joining me in the studio is Jason Palmer. He is the editor of Espresso, the Economist's morning briefing app. Jason, welcome. Hi there. First, let's start with a general question,
2: which is, what is quantum computing
1: and what is quantum technologies
2: well one sort of a subset of the other quantum technologies uh, is, is kind of a neologism for a, a suite of new things that are that are coming out that make use of quantum mechanics in a in a new way in a different way this has been around for a long time it absolutely underpins the technology we already have in our hands but along the way as, as the rules for that were worked out um, a few really odd effects popped up things called superposition for instance where a particle can seem to be in one place and another at the same time or some mix of the two or entanglement where uh, particles are sort of connected across vast distances and you seem to be able to get information about one by kind of poking and prodding the other. Quantum technologies basically are finally putting these weirdo effects to, to good use and quantum computers are, are just an example of that.
1: So what are some of the practical technologies that we can imagine coming out of this new area of science?
2: Well, they fall into sort of three broad categories. I would say sensors, networks and computing and sort of allied computing stuff. Sensors is just a matter of once you get down to the atomic level where these 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 effects kind of arise, um, then you are actually tapping into the sensitivity of atoms to their environment. This used to be a real problem for people who were kind of trying to build quantum computers for instance. Turns the problem on its head. If the environment is messing up your quantum computer effort, why not turn that same kit into into sensors? Examples of uh, of the kinds of things that we'll be able to measure with extraordinary precision include uh, magnetic fields, so I can see you know what the neurons in your brain are doing, or or gravity itself, which has implications for for navigation. If GPS goes down, being able to see submarines under the sea. And certainly the autonomous car industry is already very interested in this because their, their sort of safety and reliability is going to be very dependent on them being able to sense their environment. So huge jumps in precision there. Now there's also networks which basically depend on this entanglement business I was speaking of or indeed uh, superposition the the point being that these networks will be fundamentally unhackable lots of early efforts on this didn't turn out to be unhackable as the p- technology has progressed there are examples of links and networks and and networks that go across entire countries as a matter of fact China has one between Beijing and, and Shanghai where the, the 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 security of these links is is guaranteed by physics that as you can easily imagine has uh, lots of lots of interest from from national governments, but also as, as those build up, we'll have lots of consumer applications fall out the sides. And then we get to quantum computers, which uh, you know you, you may have heard of before, which, yeah, th- this, was, this was theoretical stuff. It was a brilliant idea. If we could build one, it would be amazing. We're starting to be able to build them now. So let me understand, what is the
1: benefit of using quantum technologies? Is it that we're able, and let's take the case of the quantum computer, is it because we're able to do... Just more computation, more calculations, far faster at, a, at an exponentially larger scale? Or is it because we're doing something that's fundamentally different that we weren't doing before?
2: More the latter, I think. I mean, we, we've come to understand the, the the strength, the value of a computer is in its speed. And, the, you know, next year's computer, next most expensive computer is just simply faster. It does the same thing, just more, you know, bit flips per second. Quantum computers do things in a fundamentally different way. We're using a, a fundamentally different sort of law of nature. It's not just your binary computing with zeros and ones. The point is that you have these superpositions. You have zero and one at the same time. You have your bits inside these machines um, entangled with one another. So I can't just describe what's going on in the computer as you know this bit is doing this and this bit is doing that. It's very dependent. This bit here is actually connected in some way to this bit over here. They're on this grand... A strange connected state that if you use programs that build, you know, uh, that sort of break down problems into quantum amenable ways, you're, you're searching for the answer in a fundamentally different way. You get really into the the details of it. It's about something called probability amplitudes. The upsum is that basically the probability of the right answer is, it shoots up as this calculation goes on and the probabilities of the wrong answers all kind of go away.
1: So why is it new now? What's changed
2: Well, if you think about the technology that we have now, you know, the way that we think about, you know, computers getting faster, that's because the features in them get smaller, right? We're coming up against, believe it or not, limits that are imposed by quantum mechanics. You make your gate material inside of a chip thin enough, and the particles, the electrons, can just sort of sail through them. You short-circuit the whole thing. What's different about this, across all of these technologies, is that we're building sort of from, from the atom up, from the particle up, from the single photon up. And that's only become possible because through years and years and years of laboratory research, mostly for other stuff, has made scientists able to to control, to address, to look after these particles with unbelievable precision. So what, what ties all of these quantum technologies together is we're kind of coming at the problem from the other direction, building up from single atoms, single particles, single ions, single photons, and so on. Um, and that has only come about because uh, scientists working on largely other stuff over the past few decades have just gotten very, very good at controlling and, and addressing and, and reading out and looking after these, these these particles, which are, you know, they're hard to tame, and they they have their own sort of demands. It's just the sort of slow march of engineering that makes us able to to deal with single atom systems. And single atom systems carry within them all this potential of the quantum goodness.
1: Okay. I love it. Sign me up. How much does it cost and when can I get one?
2: For now, a lot. But the point is because there's so much of it and there's so much obvious buy-in from some of the biggest names in the world. You know, all the big tech companies have planted their flags. Bosch, the, the biggest maker of sensors for, for automotive in the world, already has research into this. It's it's getting cheaper. Great, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
1: Drones are useful things, especially at sea unmanned, underwater vehicles are used for things ranging from prospecting for oil and gas to naval warfare. But like their aerial cousins, these, though ocean-going drones, have limited ranges, limits that are often imposed by their batteries. At the moment, those batteries are usually either alkaline or lead-acid. Lithium-ion batteries are unsuitable for technical reasons. Now a firm in the United States is offering an alternative, batteries based on aluminum. Joining me now in the studio is the economist, technology correspondent,
3: Hal Hodson. Hello, Hal. Hi, Ken.
1: First, let me ask you, why is aluminum being used for the new type of battery?
3: Well, aluminum is very, very dense in terms of volume and in terms of energy. So it is one of the most energetically dense metals that you can get. And now it's important to remember that there are two kinds of batteries, batteries that you can recharge and batteries that get depleted over time and then they're done. And so if you're going to deplete your battery and not recharge it, you want it to be made of the, the most energetic stuff possible, crammed into the smallest space possible. And aluminium is this. It's pretty much as good as you can get. The issue is that there have been a number of engineering challenges to do with actually eating that aluminium up inside a cell in a way that works for a long enough time to use it all.
1: So what is the chemistry involved?
3: The chemistry is relatively simple. It's seawater, which contains hydroxide ions, and those hydroxide ions attack the aluminium, and they release electrons and also aluminium hydroxide. And now that aluminium hydroxide is one of the big problems. It tends to build up on the aluminium inside the battery and clog up the works. So
1: how much better are these batteries compared to the alternatives?
3: They have about 10 times more energy per unit volume than the the chemistries that are currently used in underwater vehicles this is a a pretty big jump and i think it does still remain to be proven in the market but they um, they've got a lot of customers they've got customers in the u.s government and so there's there's a lot of people out there who are pretty excited about having this much extra extra power Using
1: aluminum batteries in this way, especially for a device in the sea using seawater, sounds like a no-brainer. Why did it take until now for people to come up with this idea?
3: So the idea has been around for a long time, and it it is something of a no-brainer as soon as you know any, you know, just your periodic table. But it's just that it's been very fiddly. There's, There's the waste problem. A lot of the time people have been trying to use air instead of water as the medium for charge to move around. One of their best innovations is how to deal with the waste, um, and they do this using car seat foam. So they 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 continually flush the aluminium hydroxide out of the battery cell and into this chamber that's filled with foam, and the foam slows down the flow and precipitates the aluminium hydroxide out of solution onto the foam, and eventually the foam gets all clogged up, and then they eject it and they release another chunk of foam that's been squished in storage so that they can have loads and loads of foam. So this way they can have, it can take as much aluminium hydroxide waste as they need.
1: It sounds like we're also polluting the seas while we putter around in, an, in a drone.
3: A, a little bit, yeah.
1: Okay, so that's just a problem that we it's live with. It's a cost
3: of doing business underwater, I think.
1: Got it. Okay, good, good that there's a lot of the water, I guess. So I understand the industrial uses of this. How about household uses?
3: They have thought about household uses. There's really no reason it wouldn't work above water as well as below it. All you need is a reliable flow of water. And so what they have been thinking is that this could be a kind of backup, that you'd have a stack of these aluminium batteries sitting in your basement and that when the power goes off, what happens automatically is that the water starts flowing through this battery and it starts to work. And there's really no reason you wouldn't do that, but it's probably not the first thing you would do because if you think about it, Aluminium takes energy to make, so Alcoa and all these big aluminium manufacturers use a lot of energy to make it. And so, by sort of burning aluminium in these batteries, you're kind of you're not going to the source. You may as well just burn hydrocarbons if you're going to use it as a backup. So it's really, it it, it really is. There's probably a couple of little things where it'd be useful, like a backup of nuclear power plants specifically that you sure. mentioned. But for the moment, underwater applications are where it's at.
1: Great, Hal. Thank you very much. If you have any thoughts on quantum technologies or possible uses for new aluminum batteries, do send them in an email to us at radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio, or find us on our Facebook page. You're listening to The Economist Science and Technology Show, Babbage. Finally for today, in 1907, a Chicago taxi company came to the conclusion that it ought to have yellow cars based on a university-run survey, which revealed that the color was the most noticeable. That made it ideal for potential passengers to spot the company's taxis in the sea of mass-produced black cars that were common at the time. Now, more than a century later, it turns out that yellow was a particularly wise choice, as a new study reveals that yellow taxis are much less likely to get into accidents than taxis of other colors. Joining me down the line is the economist science correspondent Matt Kaplan. So explain the new study.
4: Well, the researchers were wondering, because these folks are based in Singapore, they know that the largest company in Singapore has both yellow and blue taxis. And the researchers speculated, just because blue is less noticeable to the eye than yellow, or at least that's what they thought, they asked the company if they could take a look at their data sets for, over the years, how often do taxis of each color get it into an accident? And you're talking about a huge number of taxis. The company in question has uh, on the order of 15,000 taxis. And uh, it's not 50-50 blue and yellow, but it's like 5,000 yellow and the rest blue or, or vice versa. It's huge. And when the researchers started going through the data set, they found, well, wait a minute. The, the The yellow taxis get in accidents notably less often than the blue ones. What's going on here? Is that because of visibility? So what was the answer? Well, they they needed to di- distinguish whether or not it was actually visibility. So the first thing they went out and did was looked at the population of the drivers. Were the drivers different? Were they driving differently? And fortunately, taxis have GPS systems on all of them, so you can track how often the driver goes on a break, where the driver goes, how how quickly the driver is driving, you know, that kind of stuff. And when they, they compared the data sets between the blue and yellow taxis, they came out absolutely identical. And so then they started looking at when the taxis got into accidents, because you can go into the report forms and see, was the taxi in an accident when it was pitch dark? Was it in an accident when the other driver could have seen it or not. And all of that data revealed that when the taxis were not visible, so reversing into somebody or being sideswiped or what have you, it didn't matter a hoot whether or not the taxi was yellow or blue. And when lighting conditions were awful, you couldn't tell whether it was yellow or blue, what have you, then you still got into an accident at an equal number of times. But when the lighting conditions were good enough or when the taxi was right in front of you, yellow taxis were getting into accidents significantly less often than blue ones, which suggested, well, wait a minute, these taxi, being that color means that you're protected. So
1: in fact, they're, they've identified what they see as a causal link that the color yellow
4: means for less accidents. That's, that's what it looks like. And this isn't trivial. You're talking about a difference of 70-odd accidents a month over the course of a year. That adds up to Two, two and a half million Singaporean dollars. It's a, that's a lot of money for a company to be coughing up just because it's kept some of its taxis yellow. Incidentally, the reason some are yellow and some are blue is because this particular company was the result of a merger many years ago between two companies, one of which had blue cars and one of which had yellow. So it was completely accidental for the color combination. It, yeah, it's it's entirely accidental, and it's not a mechanical issue either. Because you you might say, well, wait a minute, maybe the yellow taxis are a different make, but actually, all of the yellow and blue taxis are Sonatas, Hyundai Sonatas. So it's it, it's not an issue of one car functioning differently than the other. It's a matter of how people perceive these taxis, and it, as far as they can tell, it appears to be down to color.
1: Now, Matt, my final question to you is, going back to the original study in 1907, does the new study help us answer that question, do yellow taxis get more fares?
4: That's an interesting question. Uh, the researchers didn't go into that, but you could find out, because all these GPS systems that are on the cars record when the taxi is in service and when it is not. And an intriguing question to ask would be, are the yellow taxis in service more often? I uh, My speculation is no, because then you would have found that the driving was being conducted differently by yellow cars and blue cars because they're in service more often. So I would guess that they are not being cited more often and used more often. But it's still a good question to ask.
1: Great. Matt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken. Sadly, that's all we have time for in this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. If you'd like to know more about aluminium batteries, quantum computing, or the color of taxis, don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's Economist or find us online at Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.